Hey friends. I mean, what can I even say at this point? We've had weeks of wonderful interviews with smart and funny and wise coaches from all over the country. I get something from every conversation, and then I get even more when I listen back to our conversations later. This series will be something I revisit again and again as a coach, and I hope that you are able to take advantage of these interviews in the same way. Today, we're sharing our interview with Don Crabtree, who has coached for over four decades and currently serves as the president of the National Speech and Debate Association. No further explanation necessary for why Melissa and I were so excited to speak with him. Here's our conversation with Don. So thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us on Forensics Faces. We're, we're really excited to speak with you. Um, yes. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so Melissa and I do this, this podcast every week, and we just kind of chat about forensics here in Wisconsin. Uh, but we are really excited about these conversations we're having with coaches from outside our organization, uh, just to find out how they do things in their state. And in your case in particular, we're really curious about um, getting involved on the national level with the NSDA. So we'll get sure. into that in a little bit. But first, we just kind of want to find out some more about you. Like, where do you coach? Where have you coached? Um, you sure. know, outside of being a uh, coach, what's your day job? How long have you been coaching? That sort of stuff. Sure. This is my 46th year of coaching. Uh, you know, I started when I was five. I'm joking. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Thirty-six of those were at Park Hill High School, which is a large suburban school by the airport in Kansas City, Missouri. And I retired from there, but a former student has my position, and I still help out with them probably two to three days a week. I'm actually teaching in the building and then working with him and the team. Nobody ever retires in forensics. It's not, I, it's not, not possible. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. So um, how did you first get involved with forensics? Were you a competitor as a student? Yeah, I uh, I live in St. Joseph, which is a small town of about 80,000 miles, 50 miles north of where I teach and went to high school here. And I think like a lot of young people, you know, you're searching for a niche, something that, that you uh, can belong to and, and maybe feel like you're doing well at. And, you know, sports were okay orchestra was okay and I just happened one day to be taking a public speaking class and found out that there was this competitive side and that's pretty much when I was hooked the big difference for me was way back then our school did not belong then it would have been the NFL now the NSDA and so our comp- we had lots of competition but there was never any knowledge of what was bigger than our kind of really, as I look back, small circle. But that's where, you know, again, that was my niche. And I think it made high school incredibly enjoyable for me. And I think a lot of kids are are out there just, you know, looking for some kind of identity and like what I call a home base uh, to belong to. Absolutely. Were you invited onto the team? Did you know what forensics was when you showed up in high school? No, I had no idea. I was in a public speaking course. Maybe about the second presentation, uh, the teacher who ended up always being my favorite teacher said, you know, what you ever want to do? And she kind of listed some things and terp and, and oratory. And I said, well, yeah, I don't know. Let me see. And I saw a couple of kids and it was all done after school come in and perform and kind of was immediately hooked. And then we went to our first competition, which by today's standards was 20 minutes away. So, but to me, it was like, wow, we're going to another high school on a Saturday. (laughs) And um, it was a little overwhelming at first. And then I had some initial success and pretty much was hooked from then on. What was the first category you did? The first category I did was poetry. And let me just tell you, I was beyond dreadful. (laughs) I'm not even sure I understand the literature that was handed to me, which is a little different than how we do it now. 
And then she said, well, you know what? I want you to try this in Terp category. And so she gave me, as I recall, Death of a Salesman for DI. And absolutely did well with it. And that, that re- I mean, I did other things, but that was definitely my, the one I felt the best of. That's awesome. And a piece kid's still doing in DI today. Mm-hmm. I saw someone do Death of a Salesman at Nationals last year. You know, I think a lot of times our interpreters will say, oh, I don't want to do that because that's old. And, and I think it's immediately wrong to immediately, you know, disregard a selection because it's old. If it, if it can be done really well, there's nothing wrong with bringing back some of those traditional, beautifully written uh, plays. Uh, and I have no problem with, you know, uh, new genres and, you know, whatever is cutting edge right now. But I just think you should never limit any realm of, of literature and material that's out there. I think it's very unfair to the kid and your audience. So, Agreed. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you were a student learning about forensics, which I think most of us do when we get to high school, I think very <laughs> very few of us come into high school even knowing what forensics is. Um, how did your family react or did, did, like I, I joke about the fact that like I've been doing forensics now as a student and a coach for over 15 years my mom still doesn't know what I do every Saturday. She's just happy. I'm, I'm happy. Uh, did you, did your family know what you were doing? Do they, do they know what you oh, do now? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They just knew that I would leave sometimes Friday or Saturday and I would have to be dressed up. And when other of the group, you know, maybe would come to our home, they, they sensed this was a good group of kids. So they just kept quiet. They didn't want to rock the boat and thought this is probably a good thing. But, oh, absolutely not. My wife and daughter <laughs> uh, to this day who've been involved, you know, involved as outsiders, I'm not sure. And they've helped me host three national tournaments. I'm not sure they still know. <laughs> you know, I remember at our last nationals, uh, my daughter was just absolutely instrumental in pulling that off. She's in marketing. Oh, yeah. And she came up to me. She came up to me that evening, and she said, Dad, "Why do these people dress alike in that duo category?" I kept <laughs> seeing boys with matching ties, and you know, and I just thought that's a, a neat question uh, to the untrained eye. Yeah, you know. So uh, do they know a lot more than when I first started? Sure, but I still don't know that they know the whole end game. <laughs> Oh, as so many of our families don't. <laughs> yeah, sometimes blind support is, is still well welcomed. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I, I've taught so long with so many young people. And honestly, I believe this with all my heart. I don't care what you're in. It doesn't have to be forensics. I don't care if it's sports. I don't care if it's orchestra or choir. But the thing that saves so many kids is just being in a good environment with other good kids, you know, working towards some goal. And it's very frightening to see kids in the hall that you just sense have no place. And I think that makes high school hard. I I just think, again, I I certainly am the biggest proponent for speech and debate, but I just want to see a kid find a niche with a good, in other words, a good niche, you know? So, so we would love to find out more about, Missouri forensics. So what kind of categories do you do there? Are they uh, like, do they just kind of echo what's happening at the national level? Do you guys have a state organization that runs things? How do you set up tournaments? We do. We we are heavily, this is not a criticism, so to speak, by the Missouri State High School Activities Association. Okay. And they regulate all activities, sports, cheerleading, choir, you know, you name it. So we have a lot of good things from that. And we have a lot of restrictions. When I first competed, you could not travel out of state more than 125 road miles, not air miles, road miles. Now you could go to St. Louis, which is like 280 miles, 20 times a year, but I could not go the 129 miles to Des Moines. Oh, come on. And then, <laughs> no. So over the course of 40 years, that's how long it's taken, we now are allowed 
250 air miles from the border and what they call a freebie. So once a year, you can take your team anywhere you want. For example, in, uh, in February, we'll take our group to Stanford, but we can only do that once. Okay. So there is no what I would call or hasn't been to speak of any big kind of national uh, availability to us. But I will tell you, historically at the national level, the state does very well in every category. So I can't argue that it's hurt us. But I do, I do see a lot of benefits from some, some of that travel. I think you can get way over your head with it, too. So what yeah. would what would happen if your team if you wanted to go to nationals and it was more than two hundred and fifty air miles away, like would you just not well, be able to do that Stanford tournament then because no. you have to save your freebie for later in the year? No, because anything that happens after May thirty first, they don't care. What? Oh, that, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that is one reason why our national tournament is always that second or third week in June. Because we're not the only state with those kind of rural concepts. So in uh, other words, what we, do, what we do after May 31st, oh, go, you know, you probably could go to Brazil or somewhere. <laughs> too, but, uh, but they're okay with that. So it's, an inter- but it's also a very good organization. Uh, we have all the normal events. And then, like many states, we've added a couple of things. Like we have uh, storytelling, radio. Readers Theater, One Act Play, those are only done at our district and state MISHA, Missouri State High School Activity Tournaments. Any invitation you go to is pretty much all the standard NSDA events, weekend after weekend. Wow. I don't even know what Readers Theater is. Could be we in Wisconsin do not have that. It's an interesting concept. You're allowed 30 minutes. The only kind of costuming is you have to all look alike if that's what you want to do. You don't have to. And you take a piece of literature or multiple pieces, and it's a 30-minute program that is done with a script. Uh, They can become incredibly creative. Uh, I've seen some absolutely brilliant, brilliant ones. Um, Kind of a neat event. But again, you're only going to do it at most twice unless you just want to do it as a showcase night for your school, Mm. because you're only going to do it at district. And so many go from district and then you do it at state and the top two are recognized. Wow. Again, it's a limited event, but I think it's a, can be a very powerful, you would never see that at an invitation later. Mm. It sort of sounds like the only Wisconsin equivalent we have is, is group interpretation, which is only 12 minutes, I think. But or even maybe the one act festival that happens. Yeah. We have one act too, again, only at that district and state level. Mm-hmm. Wow. But, cool uh, but stuff. I've seen some absolutely brilliant readers' theaters. I saw one of the best ones I've ever seen last year on gender identification. It was pieced together with lots of phenomenal literary kind of things, and it was brilliant. How That's is that? So cool. I was going to say, how is that received in your state? Because, uh, you know, we sometimes struggle with judges who are not as progressive or liberal as perhaps some of us sure. wish they were. Um, you know, do your students ever have to worry about presenting something that might not be taken very well by a judge? Absolutely. I, I don't care what state you're in. I've been to too many and seen things. You know, that, that we tell our kids, you know, control whatever variables you can. You know you cannot be over time. You know you can be memorized. You know the character pops and so on. What you cannot worry about is if Judge A or B just has um, whatever feeling toward a certain thing. So when you're selecting material, we really stress it and keep that in mind. You know, now granted, I don't think you can ever make, you can never offend the judge. I don't think you can be so graphic with gore and whatever, because then I think you've lost your message. But yeah, I mean, and sometimes, you know, um, that's happened. I, I honestly feel <clears throat> over time, it's gotten a little better. We seem to have less, uh, I, I hate to call them rogue judges because they're absolutely entitled to their 
opinion sure. and how yeah. you feel about something. But I just think there's a risk factor when if you're ever going to make somebody uncomfortable. I think you can make them think about an issue and they want to feel uncomfortable, it's okay. Mm-hmm. But to purposely go in with, you know, I want to really start all the, you know, at, I think that's the wrong approach. And most literature isn't even, doesn't even direct it in that way in many cases. I I come from a team where sometimes we have to figure out the balance of of going in wanting to force someone to be uncomfortable to help push them towards having those thoughts and also figuring out then whether or not that's taking away from the message. So, but I, re- sure. I really and like I that the idea of the controlling the variables, like just informing people, like that's one of the things you know going into your round that you can do is all those the variables are the thing you can take care of and. The opinions of the judge. We refer to them as squirrely judges yeah. in our parts <laughs> rather than rogue yeah, judges. Too. I like we rogue do. judges way better. Rogue judges sounds way more like intense. It sounds it sounds like an X-Men character. Yeah. <laughs> <It does. laughs> uh, the kids would probably say squirrel. Um, but I, I just think you, you, you have so much to worry about with this performance. And I don't care if it's in a policy debate, Lincoln Douglas Public or in terror. Yeah. You can only control the things you can control. Do you have enough evidence? Do you really know these cases? Have you prepped against this team and so on? The rest, I honestly believe, in the long run, will fall on your side mm. if you've controlled all those variables. That's a hard lesson to teach. Yeah. And it's an ongoing lesson. But it's and, also a really important one. Yeah. And I also have oh, this kind con- I think it's a life lesson. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. I also have this conversation with my students when it comes to content, too, which is that if you do something incredibly well, a judge might forgive something that otherwise they would make them uncomfortable. Sure. Um, whereas if you're oh, not if you're not doing it particularly well. Um, they may fall back on that as like a reason for a poor rank, but only because they can't articulate what it is that they didn't actually like about the piece. Absolutely agree. So, you know, sometimes it's, it's an easy scapegoat to say like, well, they just gave me the, you know, the poor ranking because I used the S word. And it's like, well, there's also some other reasons. Sure. We have a lot of discussions. I always remember when we get to this part, they will say, well, you write on the board, Mr. Crabtree, all the words we can't say. And I go, no, number one. Mm-hmm. But number two, <laughs> probably because you're asking is a good reason to think through that. You know, I mean, this is also true, too. I don't ever believe in stifling creativity and giving a kid a voice. That's what we're all about. Mm-hmm. But I also believe it is done in a public forum, is the arena. Uh, I don't know anyone, maybe somebody smarter than we are, who ever charged for these things, because I can't imagine anybody paying, (laughs) although I think think they would be impressed. Um, And I just think you've got to keep, you know, it's got to be a balance. It's a tough tightrope, you know, to walk. I don't think you should disregard a piece of literature, you know, automatically. But I do think you got to really think through the process. Agreed. 100%. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's chat a little bit more about the NSDA. You are currently the president of the board of directors for the NSDA, correct? That's correct. So Mm -hmm. for those who may not know, how do you get onto the NSDA board and how do you become an officer on the board? Sure. Uh, every uh, it's a biannual election. We have a board of nine, so we never want we never want the whole board going off at once. That's why we kind of alternate those. So there's always at least some that have remained while the new people come on. You have to have taught five years, and then you put your name in, and then there is a national ballot that is sent out to every chapter uh, and provisional chapter in the United States, and they vote. So when we're each biannual year, we're electing four directors. Uh, Those four become uh, the sitting board, and they are four-year terms. The board itself elects their own president and vice president every two years, and that is done just by the vote uh, of the sitting board members. And how long have you held the position you currently have? 
I was vice president for 12, I think from 2002 to 2012-ish, and then president the last five with one more year in that term remaining. Wow. Now, I been was a- very blessed to get on the board in 1988 and remain there, and that is truly a blessing. <laughs> so. so what I guess what is the role of a, a general board member? You know, what's required of you? And then, like, as president, what do you do? Um, You know, you're calling it a blessing, but it sounds like a lot of work to me. It sounds like tons (laughs) of work. Um, The board members certainly make all the policy, the rules, uh, governing all those events. But they also have the extra burden of any fiduciary things, running, you know, salaries. We... We, you know, hire the executive director. We establish those salaries and so on. Uh, Budget is always a huge thing that we spend many, many, many hours on. And everyone on the board certainly has a vote in that. But everyone on our board is involved in one of those areas on what we call a, a board committee. So there's a competition rules committee, a finance committee, a a development committee, a governance committee, and so on. And they may meet many, many times before the actual board meeting. And then they bring their input uh, to the whole board if something, they're recommending something to be passed. And we've only been doing that, I think, the last five years, five or six. And it's a much more um, effective way to conduct business. In terms of the president, you don't have a lot of huge extra things. Uh, You do conduct the board meetings. Uh, You do, uh, if there is an issue, an emergency issue, uh, run the governance board. And then of course, we all have certain duties at the national tournament that we're asked, you know, to handle. What do you typically do at nationals? Well, my favorite thing to do that I've done, I think, since 95 is to be in the ombudsman's room, which is a thing that Don Roberts, former board member from South Dakota, established a couple of years before that. And it's just a place that a coach or kid can come to get a question answered. Or unfortunately, if there's been a rules violation, it's brought to you. And you're the first level of no, that's not true, or yeah, you really messed up, and I have to kick you out of the tournament. Then we have an appeals process after that. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time, you are an information processor, you know, like, where's the bathroom or something. So, um, <laughs> that's always my first say, stop when I need to find the bathroom, is find the <laughs> ombudsman. That's the first thing I find out when I get to the site, <laughs> trust me. Um, you know, where are the postings? You know, when are those going to go up? How does break happen and so on? So I think he was brilliant in establishing um, an area that people can come to, you know, comfortably and approach you if they have an issue, a question, a concern. And I met some of the most amazing people and now some of my really close friends in that process. So I think, I think uh, great applause to Mr. Roberts for, for, you know, coming up with that concept. Prior to that, we didn't, I don't know. I guess you just wandered around. <laughs> yet you know, an, I don't know, yet another thing that uh, Don Roberts has given to the forensics yeah, community. Yeah. yeah. And I actually met you, Don, last year through that process was having to come to bring a rules oh. violation <laughs> at, in Salt Lake city. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) So I was very grateful to have that there because the woman that I was with uh, was also very unsure. And we both had a lot of guilt about bringing a rules violation. And it was the second day of competition, too. So we felt very, like, horrible about it. So I I think if anything, what I would prefer, I prefer that any day over right before the final, somebody walking in and saying, well, you know, round one. Yeah. bothered me. And I'm just now coming to you. Because then if it's true, that violation perhaps has hurt other young people moving along the process, and we have no way to correct that, you know? So, yeah, it's, sometimes it's, it's not a pleasant <clears throat> place, 
but I just think it's important that there is a place people feel like where they really honestly believe there is no question that is stupid or silly. Yeah, no. And all of you who are working there were very helpful to us. We asked a lot of really stupid questions while we were filling out the sheets. And so I felt very, I felt very comforted coming there with, with our inquiries. So I, I will use myself as a testament to people who never be shy to ask questions. That's what the ombudsman is for. Yeah, it's great. It's a great concept, truly. And it's always feast or famine. Yeah. <laughs> or you're like staring at the ceiling. <laughs> so. Oh, um, so for somebody, if you had to make a commercial to get somebody to think about being on the board, um, you know, what type of uh, like time and resources and travel are required of board members? Um, sure. And what are the benefits? Sure. Uh, Time-wise, we have two in-person meetings, and I'm really lucky on this, as you'll find out in a minute. Our new office is in Des Moines, Iowa. So for me, that's two hours and 40 minutes straight up Interstate 35. I just got the postcard. And I think, <laughs> I think four or five of our members can do that drive. And then the others, uh, you know, would fly in and fly out. That is taken care of. We take care of that expense, their meals, their hotel, and so on. And those are three to four day meetings, sometimes five if it's a retreat. Uh, in the past, they've been maybe where the uh, venue is for nationals, but we've already been to Birmingham a number of times, so we thought we can save money and just meet in Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Um, so you definitely have those two physical meetings. And then all through the year, though, we have the committee meetings. Uh, on GoToMeeting, and then we have uh, two virtual board meetings, December and March. And that pretty much always keeps us up hmm. with current. So you're not walking in after having been there in September and, you know, which is kind of how it was in the beginning days for me. Oh, by the way, we have these big issues. So y'all have three days to figure it out. Um, <laughs> so, uh, in terms of, of cost, they'll take care of that for you. No one should, should no one should not run for the board uh, worrying about that because if it's airfare or you need a rail car or whatever, that's and it is for nationals too. That's taken care of it for for the board member. Okay. When do those in person board meetings typically happen? Are they usually uh, like when teachers have off school that they don't have to worry about using no, PTO or vacation no, time? Um, they are they are usually the third week in September. Okay. And you, usually this could change the second week in May. Now they will also, if need be, pay for your sub while you're gone. So that's not hopefully getting coming out of PTO or your personal days or whatever. Our school has been incredibly nice that my principal just finds, especially when I was full time. Mm-hmm. I don't know what these days are called. He calls them coupons and he gets so many for people to go to places and stuff. And through this whole thing, and I've had the same principle since 95. Wow. They never said no, never said no. Wow. So it does take a little time away, but expense wise and things, that's not the burden uh, of anyone considering, you know, uh, being on the board. That's awesome. So as a board member, what what are the benefits other than, you know, feeling good about serving this organization and the activity that we love? um, You know, there's got to be some personal benefit to getting to spend time with that group of people. Um, But one is just an incredibly group of group of people. I'm excluding myself. (laughs) I I have I have never left a meeting or, or dinner after the meeting or whatever and probably not learned something. Because I guess what we talk about, you know, speech and debate. Um, Shocker. Yeah. I mean, Don Roberts is one of my best, best friends. And I first met him when I joined the board in 88. And so I can say, and we have been great, great friends all this time because of that. So those are just personal things. For me, Sometimes when it's in a place that is appealing to my daughter or wife, uh, they will go and they go do their thing. 
you know, during the meetings. So they get a little travel. Now that that is our expense. That's not the board, mm-hmm. but sure, but it's reduced because they're staying in the same room and we can all share the same car and so on. Uh, and I think it's hard to deny that there some of the big factors are just you feel personally involved in how the organization's going. You know, I I was there. For, I called them birth <laughs> for the birth of public forum, for the birth of duo. And now informative and poi, and to just watch that whole process. I mean, it, you know, I remember duo was just something we we thought we wanted, mm-hmm. and then you know the the evolutionary process of um, because all these events go through evolution. They're all still going through them, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but to, you know, I remember when we did duo, Lainey Meglin from Texas and I thought we were absolutely brilliant. We had all the rules. It was perfect. We had this bizarre thing that said you could only do one character, each actor. Well, you know, suddenly then people were asking, well, what about material like Greater Tuna and those things where it's written for one actor, but they're really different characters. So after that trial year, trust me when I tell you, we went right back to drawing board and made that adjustment. So all those events continually kind of monitor and, and change on their own. There are just some you got to fix right away. So, <laughs> I can't even imagine Duo being like that. Like the where it has oh, it evolved was. to now. I was going like, to say, I, if you, I will raise my hand. I was competing when that was a rule. Oh, that's crazy. If, if you watch the 96 final round, that was our first final round. And you watch today. It's same talented kids. That mm-hmm. hasn't changed night and day. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. and I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah, evolution. We love progress. Yeah, evolution is something that Melissa and I both love. Not everybody in our well, state I, does, but. <laughs> no, I, I think things grow stagnant if it's just the same yes. way. I mean, and these kids are so sharp. And they're the ones out there doing this every weekend. They're the ones that that causes change. And I applaud it. I have yes. always been a proponent. Amen. Now, I'm glad you brought up poi and informative because um, I hadn't thought of asking this, but I am curious. How do you guys make the decision to add a category? Sure. Um <clears throat> You know, we're always evaluating, uh, are we meeting needs as kids? Or the other thing that is a huge issue, space. Yeah. You know, if you look at that tournament from 96, so the first one I hosted in 83. In 83, it was all done in our high school. And while we have a big high school, it's not that big. And the awards assembly was in our high school auditorium. The whole awards assembly. Well, you know, by 94, when I hosted it, we had to go rent the Kansas City Municipal Theater. And by 2010, the third time we hosted, we had to rent an expo center. Yeah, we were there. That that changes. And, um, you know, so we're looking at those things. Need, can we do this? You know, we don't want to get in the market where, okay, there's nowhere we can go. Or we're in so many venues that you can't even get to them. Although we have boarded that a few times. <laughs> um, and so, as I recall, Pam Katie Wyckoff was very interested in formative. I was very interested in poi. So we were assigned to kind of come up with the basic things for those. And then that went through a whole process with the whole board. And then, you know, we ran the trial last year, and then they were voted as main things for hopefully continuing years. Yeah. When did you and, and Pam, like, start that process of, like, looking into those categories joining? Was that, like, just last year, or has sure. the process been going on? No, no, no. It was definitely a year to a year and a half before the trial. And so I had to check with states who may have already had this event, or sometimes they would have events called OI, which were sort of similar. And then we had to look what best needs are needs. And I know she was doing that with Inform as well. 
And then I spent did a lot of work with several uh, college people. Uh, one of the most helpful was Peter Pober from George Mason uh, and uh, Gaynor Newman from Western Kentucky uh, to see what was going on on that side. And then what you hopefully have is some kind of a blend uh, of those things, the OI states. And then there were, like, the closest thing we had here was an event called Poetry and an event called Prose, and never the twain met. <laughs> and actually still have those, but now we've added the poi. So mm-hmm. Our poi so equivalent is Farago. Pardon me? Our poi equivalent is called Farago. Uh, Farago right. is a, is a yes. farming term. Yes. No, that was, in fact, I had to call someone and ask because I got the information and I thought, what is this? Why is it called that? <laughs> now well, I remember that. Yeah. We're Wisconsin and we like farming terms and a Farago That's field fine. is a field with multiple crops inside of it. And a Farago performance is a piece with multiple sources in it. And so we call it Farago, but it, it translated nicely for us. We didn't have to work as hard as some other states did to put together a POI program. We and lucked out. Thought That's what it meant. I thought, well, this is perfect. But when I first <laughs> looked at that, when I first got the emails and things, I thought, I have no idea why they call it that, you know? <laughs> and then I asked uh, someone, I think Deborah Tross or someone, and, and got the answer. Because I was like, oh, that makes great sense. <laughs> Does it really? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's very kind of you. <laughs> it is. Like, maybe. No, I mean, the name does. Yeah. I don't, you know. If you know the etymology of the word, it makes sense. But since so few people yeah, do. Yeah, but I can bet you that. <laughs> Yeah, most kids who are competing in Farago have no idea why it's called that. Oh, I would imagine that, yeah. I would, that would be the same here if we had something like that, yeah. But we'll never change the name. We never will. Nope, nope. <laughs> that's all right. It, never. Not oh, Wisconsin. That's that's awesome. I love having that insight. Um, I wanted to also ask you, like, why did you decide to join the board back in the 80s? And, you know, what what did you hope to achieve and, and what has changed in your tenure while you've been on the board and as president? Sure. I think my first, uh, well, when you host the Nationals and you're young and naive and think you can do all these things with no problem, you learn all <laughs> sorts of things. And in that process, you're working a lot. At that time, I worked with Dennis Winfield, who was before Mr. Copeland as the, uh, then he was called secretary. And because of that and the hosting process, I met Carmadel Fernandez, Don Roberts, Phyllis Barton, Richard Sadako, uh, all these legends, you know. Uh, and it just sounded appealing to me and interested to me. And uh, I think 86 was the first time I ran. That's when they were every two years. Literally back then, the whole board could go on and off, uh, which we found out was not a good thing and lost miserably. Mm. I want you to know. <laughs> and then I thought, well, I don't care. I mean, at least you have to get your name out there. You know, just hosting it doesn't do it. Helps, but doesn't do it. And so then I ran um, again in 88 and just was really lucky, to be quite honest. So uh, in terms of president, I think that was a desire from having served as vice president for 12 years. And I was blessed to work with the great wonderful friend, Billy Tate. And, um, he, he actually talked to me early in, in that process about that I should do it. And, um, that was, you know, great advice for me and coming from him at, you know, even more. So that, that was my, my reason for that. What did you hope to achieve in your time on the board? I'll be real honest with you. At that time, I wanted to avoid acrimony because that was a time when, you know, these are strong personalities. They're brilliant people, but they're, I don't, again, I'm excluding myself, <laughs> but they are very strong personalities. And there were times that I thought, well, I'm not sure how effective we're being because feelings would get hurt or, uh, people were mad at each other, and it was uncomfortable. I will tell you, it's been a long time since that. And and that was just something I said. I don't know if I thought I was the peacemaker. I don't know. Again, I was really young and naive. But I just thought, I don't like, you know, that's, a, that's not a good feeling. You know, we're all here for young people. And 
our own egos, so to speak, need to leave the room. And so we all had to, we all had to evolve. But I think that was my primary reason. You, you've mentioned a few, but what, what are some other notable evolutions that you've seen happen while you've been on the board? Well, there's not an event that hasn't. Uh, I remember when Lincoln Douglas came in 1980. If you look at it, we didn't videotape then. 83 was the first year we started videotaping. And you look at Lincoln Douglas today, I doubt you would recognize anything but the name. <laughs> I believe the same thing, and that's not a criticism. Mm-hmm. I believe the same thing is true of public forum. You know, I, oratory has kind of taken a, it's gone through different models uh, of presentations. Um, all of them have. There's not one that hasn't. Again, I never see that as a bad thing, or from what I've seen so far. Good. It's good to hear that there are other people who are proponents of progress because we, the state that well, we are in, I, sometimes we're always, we're always butting heads and hitting walls. So knowing that there are other people, especially on the national level in places of, of, of important leadership who help with that is very comforting to people like me. Well, I think these young people are out there in the trenches. They're doing it. And I think they bring a sixth sense, so to speak, of, those nuances and things that might make it better. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a week, but I, I, so far, and I know sometimes you could get way off the the beaten path. I've not seen anything other than, I think it's a good thing. I I call it growth sometimes because I don't say evolution because some people get bent out of shape because they don't want change. So I just say it has grown, Mm -hmm. you know. And it has. And, and I mean, both Melissa and I are beneficiaries of being in forensics during that time. So, yep. And here we are as coaches now. So nice work. That's great. <laughs> that happens for many people. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, for those coaches who are listening, who are already members of the NSDA, what can they do to help improve the organization or contribute to the organization? Uh, like, sure. wh- what do you look for from the coaches as a member of the board? I look from the coaches for a voice. We're not going to know other than by, you know, because I'm still in the trenches by my own personal experience, but that is skewed by the fact of our state rules, travel limitations, and so on. So I love hearing from people. They, we put, I have my phone number inside every rostrum. Uh, They have email, you know, and I always tell you, tell them I'll get them an answer. I may not have one immediately. And I think that's our best source. And honestly, being in that bedroom, because uh, sometimes people actually just are bored and come to talk, um, it's where we just, you know, we have to hear from people. You know, we don't know, and we don't know everything. That's what you're, you know, you're out there doing the hard stuff. Tell us how we can make that easy and better for young people. I love that. If somebody's just Same. listening and doesn't have a rostrum in front of them, what's the best way to get in touch with the board? Sure. Uh, like they can go through me uh, or the national office. You could just send the national office an email. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine is crab, C-R-A-D-N-F-L at gmail.com. And if I'm teaching or something or on an airplane, um, I mean, I, I can't obviously talk to you right then, but I, I will absolutely connect with you. That is awesome. And I think any board, any board member would do that. That's fantastic. Good. We're so glad. I love that. Um, so we very much like to know great little personal anecdotes about all the people that we interview. So if you can pick one, what is your favorite category? Either as a competitor, a judge, whatever uh, it may be, what would cool. you... What is your, like, go-to, like, oh, I just love it so much? Duo. Now, yeah. if you asked me this, when I first started teaching, I would have said policy debate. But see, I've evolved, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd say duo. Pretty much any of the interp, but I've gone totally from a rhetoric debate kind of person to the other side. And I don't mean I've totally 
gone to the other side. It's just that's where my my true interest, I think, lies. Yeah, you won't get any argument from Melissa and I. <laughs> nope, nope. I love duo. I love it. I love coaching it. I love judging it. I love it's my favorite final round at NSCA Nationals and that, and is duo always. final. Yeah, absolutely. So good. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I know it's hard to pick, but what is your favorite forensics memory? And if it's different, what's your fa- what do you consider your greatest accomplishment in forensics? I don't know about accomplishments, but uh, for me personally, my favorite moment is when I had a student win the national championship in dramatic. It doesn't get a lot better than that. <laughs> Yeah, that is the dream for most of us. Yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of surreal. Uh, This kid has a backstory. They all do, but it was quite amazing that he even stayed in school. Uh, That's another thing that I, I just have to say this and then you can shut me up. Um, never. I love it when we, I love it when we can say to other people, Oh, our kids are going to Harvard and they're going to Yale. Wonderful. But I see so many what I call at-risk kids who are saved by this program. And maybe they didn't go to Yale. But I can tell you that kid wouldn't even been in high school without this niche. And so I'm a big proponent of all young people. But sometimes I think they kind of get, I don't know, hidden in the wings somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. No. Just a personal thing for me. It's very true. No, but we we've we've been doing this for long enough too to have seen those kids where forensics is not just like an activity they do; it is a respite and a rescue place for them. Yes. And I I think all reasons are great, but certainly, you know, if it kept a kid in school and kept a kid safe and gave them some purpose, that's hard to beat that in terms of a. That's feeling good about as being a coach. Excellent. And I think it's great when I had a kid go to Harvard too. So I'm not, yeah, I'm yeah. not reducing that impact. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah. I know that our NSDA district chairperson would be very unhappy with me if I didn't ask you to also give a little commercial for the NSDA in general for coaches who maybe are not currently members. Why should their team and their students become members of the NSDA? Sure, I think there are legions of reasons, but the ones that come to me very, very quickly, one, as the honor society, young people love seeing tracking that progress of points, you know, from merit to to excellence and so on. Huge motivator. And I think it's important that they are in an honor society and we have a very good code of, uh, of conduct, a code of honor. Um, the other reason is I think the resources that are available to you from the NSDA, most of them free with membership, are you know videos, webinars, uh, judge training videos, some tremendous, tremendous things that will make your life as a coach easier and better. And then I think the idea too is a great hook. It shouldn't be the only thing that you might, with hard work, uh, very hard work, get to go to a national tournament. And I think I put that last because I think that's way down the road. I think there's so many other things beneficial for young people uh, and the coaches, especially the resources. The NSDA has been dauntless in establishing, you know, tremendous things you know that they're available to you yes they are and and even as a coach who you know this this will be my seventh year as the head coach and you know the name that's on that nsda account for my school um and i'm still discovering new things that you guys provide for us so i am too you know (laughs) (laughs) and i think part of that is you guys keep adding things too it's you know it's not like i'm just discovering these things have been around for 20 years um you know it seems like every year you guys have more staff you have more development you are you are adding uh, new and uh, different and exciting ways to interact with the NSDA sure. and, and with the world of forensics. I have to give tremendous, tremendous kudos to our national office staff. I mean, they're second to none. They are tireless. 
in, in, you know, doing all of that stuff for young people and coaches. I mean, truly tireless. Mm -hmm. And so hats off to them. Agreed. I don't have to say that to you, so. (laughs) (laughs) I say technically you're the boss, right? (laughs) So it's genuine. I've never been anyone's boss. (laughs) Well, I just want to give you a chance before we end today, if there's anything else that you wanted to share or say or shout out to anybody or promote something that's in your realm, feel free. You know, I have nothing to promote other than the organization because I think it's second to none in terms of what it does for young people and coaches, what they learn, whether it be through travel, what they learn to take on a trip, what to bring back home from the trip. I mean, these are all life skills. And I think that's what this activity gives young people are truly great life skills, communication skills, and just being around other people and so on. And the last, and I already said this, but I think our, our staff is absolutely tremendous that we have that work very hard. Well, thank you so much for taking the time My to pleasure. chat with us. It, well, this it's been our pleasure. Lovely. I uh, literally was taking notes while you were talking. So yeah. <laughs> this has been incredible. I, I, thank you so much. And, 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 uh, great story. Thank you. And we uh, wish you luck with the rest of your season. And hopefully we'll bump thank into you, you at nationals. We'd love to say hi in person. Please do. Please come by and say hello. We will. We will. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a good one. Bye. Forensics Faces is recorded and edited in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Our theme song was written and performed by J.J. Hammeister. Special thanks to Steve Shapaw and Dino Pape of the NSDA for connecting me with the folks featured in this series. If you're a fan of Forensics Faces, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. The more we're reviewed, the easier it is for other people to find us. More information is available at ForensicsFaces.com, and we really hope that you connect with us on Facebook and Twitter by searching Forensics Faces. This is Kurt, reminding you to listen, think, and speak, preferably in that order. (laughs) 